0: So let's open our Bibles to Revelation 20. And man, I hope you still have Bibles. Oh, these electronic devices are killing me. So I was profoundly surprised last week when I taught on Revelation chapter 20 on the millennium or the thousand years or the kingdom or the time of refreshing, whatever you want to call it, at the feedback I received. Uh, after the service in the cafe. Um, During the week, emails and even text I received that people were really fascinated uh, about this subject and had really never looked at it. Now, I shouldn't have been that surprised. When I taught last week, I said in 25 years of teaching this book, it was my favorite chapter. And if it's my favorite chapter, it means it's probably a lot of other people's favorite chapters. Um, I probably have a lot of passion for it, which I do. And listen to this. It's really cool stuff, right? Like Memorial Day is coming. And there's going to be like 100 superhero movies come out in dystopian societies and all about what the future may look like. Guys, this is real stuff. This is really going to happen. Everything else in the Bible has happened. This is really going to happen, and we're going to be a part of it. Some of the top questions I got last week is what's the difference between the first and re- second resurrection? resurrection? That's verse six. Uh, what type of people are going to be alive in this period? Uh, Will we be there? Believers now, say we die and go to heaven, will we be a part of the thousand years? People were glad that Satan was bound, but they're like, why is he released again? That makes no sense. Uh, The great white throne judgment, which I spent little on, I'll spend more on today, people were very nervous that they would be there, verse 11. Uh, We'll talk about that. And then some people are unnerved, like a lot of people in our culture, about death, hell, the second death the lake of fire, and the torment being forever and ever. Uh, a lot of people struggle with this. How could a good God send anyone to hell? There's been a lot of philosophizing on that, a lot of talk in the church. Uh, so, so we'll try to answer a lot of these questions, and I think God has a little, uh, some greatness in store for us. Let's get a couple verses under our belt. For If you were here last week, it's a little bit of a repeat, just to get everybody on the same page. Chapter twenty, verse one says, "I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. So now we know the serpent in the garden was the devil, and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit. A bottomless pit can only be a sphere. Sphere. And he shut him up, and he set a seal on him that he should deceive the nations no more." Till the thousand years were finished, but after these things, he must be released for a little while. Verse 4, John said, I saw thrones and those who sat on him, probably the apostles, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God and who did not receive the mark or the image of the beast on their forehead or on their their hands. That's tribulation saints. And they lived and reigned for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not rise again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, the next verse, verse 6, is a beatitude. It's a blessing. I started Revelation by saying we are not here to figure out some prophetic scenario, although we are talking about that. You need to approach the Bible, and particularly Revelation, with a certain degree of humility. The idea that we have it all figured out and we're right and we've pieced together this chronology is absurd. You know, we're looking through a glass dimly. God's given us enough revelation to get by. And so I've been trying to look at what is the blessing of this book. The first blessing pronounced was blessed is he who reads and hears and keeps those words. And we've been doing that since September. Hopefully you're blessed. And then we've looked at other blessings. Now we come to one of the final blessings in verse 6. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection Over such, the second death has no power, and they shall be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. After the thousand years, Satan's released. Out of prison, he deceives the nations, and he's judged, and that ends the thousand years. I said last week, this phrase, a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, makes me think it's a thousand years. Uh, There's a lot of redundancy there. I think God means what he says, says what he means. There, There will be a kingdom age is the idea. There will be an age where a world turned upside down will be made right side. Where God is going to show that his plan in Genesis 1 was beautiful, it was accurate, it was wonderful, it was filled with abundance. And the earth is going to experience a golden age. 1,080 verses in the Old Testament about this. Jesus talked about it. Some scholars believe it may be the predominant theme of the entire Bible. The prayer that we play, Our Father Who Art in Heaven... Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Jesus will come and set up this kingdom. Now, because this this is a vast topic, we need one of those uh, you are here maps, right? You go into the mall or a theme park, and you see this giant map, you have no idea where anything is, but it always says you are here, right? So where are we, okay? So you are here, 2019, in the church age, the age of grace, Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you get hit by the beer truck today, okay, uh, you will go to heaven. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Instantly you'll be in heaven, okay, if you're a believer. That's this age. At the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, the Lord will descend. The dead in Christ will rise first, every believer who's ever died. And we will be called up to meet the Lord in the air and forever we'll be with the Lord. While there's tribulation on earth, we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be at the beam of seat of Christ. We will receive rewards. Revelation 19, we read these verses last week, verses 11 to 16. John sees a a white horse. He who sits on him is Jesus. He's the word of God. The Lamb, you know, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is the second coming, the greatest event of all human history. Okay, that ends, by the way, human history That begins the 1,000-year reign. Uh, Only believers enter that, by the way. Okay? Only people still alive who accepted Christ who are alive will move into that period in bodies like we have right now. Okay? Remember, you and I already in heaven have come back with Christ to rule and reign for a 1,000 years. Now, turn one chapter over. When the 1,000 years is over, chapter 21, verse 1... John said, there's a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there's no more sea. Enjoy your beach house now. They will not be in the new Jerusalem, okay? Probably be something better, but there will be no more seas. That is a new heaven and earth. That's what Peter talked about when he said the earth would be dissolved. Now, this is fascinating, right? And here's a little conjecture, and God gave us minds so we can kind of think through this kind of stuff. When we enter the kingdom age, a thousand years, there's going to be somewhat of a makeover. Now, think about it. For seven years, a third of the earth has been burned. A third of the seas are polluted. There's that wormwood that comes into fresh water. There's celestial bodies changing. It looks like the universe is being altered, uh, some of it in a bad way, some of it in a cleansing. And there are many people, there are many scholars worth their salt that think that the conditions we see in the millennium will be because God will do a makeover. not not a complete makeover, but a makeover. There's verses in Isaiah where every mountain will be laid low and every valley flattened out. It's almost like sea level uh, will change in topography. And we'll get back to conditions like we had in Genesis, which allowed for long life. You know, a tragedy is going to be a, a child dies at 100. Uh, you're probably going to have like asparagus as big as my pulpit and... You know, kind of a greenhouse effect, and, you know, weather like California, where God lives for everybody, is going to be in that age. The lion's going to lie down with the wolf, and little kids are going to play in the streets and in viper's holes. Uh, But many people think the topography of the earth will change. Here's an interesting idea. I'm not saying it's true. So we have all this harping about the earth, right? We're ruining the earth. We're ruining the polar calves, the, um, you know, the polar bears. We're ruining their climate. There are many scholars, again, very smart people that think that we're regressing to a mean, that God created almost like a greenhouse, a tropical climate for everyone, but when the fall came, uh, we entered somewhat of what maybe scientists see as an ice age, and harsh winters and hurricanes and such, and maybe now we are regressing to a mean, and in that day, a planet that is sustainable for billions in a very uh, inhabitable environment for everyone. Now, that is kind of where we are and where we're going. Peter talks about the earth being dissolved, almost like a supernova uh, or a black hole, if you understand what that is. And then there's a complete makeover, and then we're in the new heavens and new Jerusalem. Now, one of my roles as a pastor, and by the way, what I do here is a very small part of what I do. My major job is to lead you on a journey to become a fully devoted follower of Christ. To do that, I have to make you a self-feeder. In all that I do, I have to convince you that every day you have to ingest the word of God in some fashion. And you just can't listen to sermons and podcasts. You have to be a self-feeder. David said, thy word I've taken in my heart that I might not sin against you. Thy word is thy very bread. Jesus said you can't live um, without God's word. You can't. You know, bread's not enough. So so the Bible's going to become a big part of your life on your own. Now, you can't be intimidated by the Bible. I've said this over and over again. It's not a hard book to understand. Neither is Revelation. Uh, The way you read the Bible is the way you read every other genre, the literal, grammatical, historical method, okay? Any book you pick up, and you read it that way until it tells you otherwise. So, in Revelation, we look at symbolism and similes and metaphors. Some of it is allegory, but it always tells us it is. You know, John will say, I saw a beast, right, who was like a lion. That's a simile. It wasn't a lion. It was like a lion. Uh, He sees locusts with men's faces. Obviously, he's trying to describe the best he can with imagery he understands. Uh, He saw or heard the voice of many waters. It wasn't many waters. It was like many waters. The point I'm trying to make is I have to drive home that the thousand years is literal. Amillennialists tell us it's not. I believe it is for two reasons. Number one, the chapter doesn't work if it's not. Number two, um, the conditions that we see, I do not see in the, the amill position. For instance, peace, right? The kingdom is supposed to be predominantly peaceful, Dr. DeHaan in The Great Society said the Bible is replete with prophecies of a coming age of peace and prosperity. It will be a time when war will be utterly unknown. Not a single armament plant will be operating. Not a soldier or sailor will be in uniform. No military camps will exist. Not one cent will be spent on armaments of war. Not a single penny will be used for defense, much less for offensive warfare. Can you imagine an age when all nations will be at perfect peace, all the resources available for enjoyment? All industry engaged in the articles of peaceful luxury, and there'll be a thinning out of the world economy, where no longer it's the 1%, or like in Guatemala where Oscar lives it's the 10%, or the 15%. It won't be rich and poor, it'll be equity for all. And I shared last week, you know, if if, if I'm living well, and the 5% are living well, and the 10% are living well, and 90% aren't, that's not a good world, that's not our father's world. And there's coming a time where God's going to set things right. Every man's going to sit under his vine and his fig tree. And we just read what the key condition of this time will be. Satan will be bound. Now remember, the people that are swept into this kingdom, billions, are still sinners. Because they're going to live long, they're going to have children and grandchildren who are still born with a sin nature, but no temptation from Satan, which makes it kind of like a golden age. Now, amillennialists will say, "No, Jesus was bound at the cross, and we're living. It's, it's a metaphor. It's an allegory of the church age. We're going to elect Christian presidents. We're going to solve, you know, the ills of the world. And then, when everything's right, Jesus will come." Now, I believe the direct opposite. I believe we can't have a kingdom without the king. I believe Isaiah: the government has to be on his shoulders, and that didn't happen in the first coming. And then I've got this problem with Satan is bound. If he's bound, this isn't the kingdom I want to live in, all right? And if he's bound, how come Ananias and Sapphira, when they sold a piece of property, kept back from some for themselves, and then told the apostles, oh, no, we gave you the whole thing. When, when Ananias died by the hand of God, the apostles told him, Satan has put this in your heart. Well, if he's in the bottomless pit and he's bound, how did he put it in their heart? And then why would Paul say your adversary The devil, like a roaring lion, goes back and forth seeking whom he may devour. If he's bound, how could that happen? And how could there be an Antichrist and a false prophet and the beast and all these things? So uh, I have a hard time believing that's possible. To me, the thousand years is literal. Make up your own mind. It's the answer to our prayers. It's a time when God turns everything right. Now, a lot of you wanted to know... What is the first resurrection? Verse six: Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and will reign for a thousand years. Whenever you talk about resurrection, your go-to chapter is First Corinthians fifteen. So every Easter, no matter what I'm teaching on, and I, gosh, I've 25 years, I've taught a different topic every Easter. But I will always mention somewhere in my talk where Paul said it was delivered to me and I'm delivered to you that Christ died according to the Scriptures, 350 Old Testament prophecies, died and buried according to the Scriptures, not a made-up story, not a fable, and has risen according to the Scriptures. We have Old Testament prophecy. Paul said that's not enough. We have eyewitness accounts. He was seen by the men. Twelve apostles, he was seen by prominent women. He was seen by over 500. We mark time by his death. The ripples of the resurrection have come down to our day. The resurrection is, to me, a historical fact, okay? But then he goes on to say something I think people don't really look at. In verse 20, he said, Now Christ is risen from the dead and is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's the Bible's way of saying death. For since by man, or Adam, death reigned, uh, by man also, Jesus, the resurrection of the dead. Now follow this. For as in Adam all die, in other words, the wages of sin is death and we have a sin nature, even so Christ shall be made alive, but each one in its order. That word order is a Greek word, it means military rank. There's an order to all this. Now follow this with me, it's very simple. Christ the first fruits, afterwards those that is coming, then comes the end, and he delivers the kingdom to the Father. Do you all get that? Okay, I know you got it. I'll just explain it. Christ is the first fruits. That's Levitical terminology. That's an agrarian society. They would take a sheath, and, and they would, it was a symbol of the harvest to come. It was a sign that if we got this corn, there was a whole lot of corn coming. I'm going to insert a word, I'm allowed, it fits. I'm going to insert the word prototype, okay? So long before any of you got an iPhone, uh, people at Apple were playing around with what's called a prototype. They're working out all the kinks and making sure this thing works so that when you get it, it works fine. And once somebody puts the stamp of approval on a prototype, they're going to make millions of these. So I worked for Boeing, and I worked on a V-22 prototype. And there's hundreds and hundreds of hours of testing. And once they're sure it works, then there's 800 of them coming along that are all going to look the same. Here's the power of the resurrection. If Christ is risen, we one day will rise with him. See, that's what makes baptism important. When we go into the pool, it's a sign that we identify with with his death, and then we will rise. But get this. Whenever you talk about resurrection, we're talking about the body. This isn't some resurrection of spirits. Is everybody clear on that? Here's how important it is. In a verse we all love to quote, Romans 10, 9, about salvation, it says, If you believe in your heart, and and you may have never looked at it this way, that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessed that with your mouth, you will be saved. With the heart, we believe, with the mouth, confession is made. What do we believe? That God raised Jesus from the dead. Resurrection. That's what we believe. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. He was the first fruits. Now, the reason he's the first fruits, listen to this. There were resurrections before Jesus. The widow's son at Nain, Jairus' daughter, and we all know about Lazarus. They are not resurrections we're talking about. All those people were resurrected back to a sinful body, and they all died again. The resurrection we're talking about is a brand new body like the prototype, like Jesus. Everybody get that? So what kind of body did Jesus have? It was cool, okay? So, you know, I always have, if I get enough people in the room, I always have this argument What would you rather be, invisible or the ability to fly? You'll be thinking about that all day. Uh, I'd rather be invisible. Maybe it's because I'm newsy. I don't know. I'd like to be in rooms where nobody knows I'm there. Uh, Maybe we'll fly and be invisible. That would be really cool. Uh, Jesus was that way, right? You know, the apostles get together. We saw the risen Lord. Thomas is like, no, I don't believe it unless I put my finger through his nail-score hands. Next time Jesus appears, Thomas... Front of the room. Put your fingers through my nails, guard hands. In other words, he was teaching them, though you don't see me, I'm always there. I'm always there. He's always with you, he's always with me. Uh, Jesus could walk through walls, he could appear and disappear. I love this. He could still eat, right? Remember, he made fish on the shore for them? So that's going to be neat. Um, remember what he said? Come and touch me. Does a spirit have flesh and bone? Didn't say blood. No more organs, none of those things. There's no sickness. Whatever these bodies are, they're going to be like Jesus. Millions of people, only believers, get dumped into the millennial thousand years. You and I return with Christ. We just read it in the second coming. We just read it in blessed are those who are in the resurrection. We will reign for a thousand years. You know there's a lot of work to be done? A lot of work to be done. Places like North Korea Mogadishu, Somalia, Sudan—some of the most God-forsaken places on the planet—have to be rebuilt, and God's going to need a lot of workers. And the power of the talents, Jesus said, "You're going to rule over cities, and there's going to be rewards." So, sinners are not in this time period. Now, the people that are in this time period are going to have kids, and because people are long, living long, there's going to be generations and generations and generations and generations. And generations. Still with the sinful nature, no temptation. Now, Satan gets released. It's a little strange uh, for most of us. Verse 7. When the thousand years is expired, Satan is released. He goes out and deceives the nations, and they're defeated, and they're cast into the lake of fire, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever Remember, this place was created for the devil and fallen angels, not for human beings. And you might say, how in the world could anybody rebel in a utopian society? And I would answer two ways. How could Cain kill Abel in in a perfect environment? God has made us in such a unique way. He's made us in his image that we can choose even against him. We can choose our own way. And uh, love demands a choice. And so for these people that have lived for a 1,000 years with no temptation, love demands a choice, just like there had to be a choice in the garden. And um, these people will be deceived, and that will end the 1,000 years. Now, verse 11 says, I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whom the face, whose face the earth had, heaven had fled away, and there was found, and this is very sad, no place for them, I saw the dead, small and great. John's saying, there's actually faces you can pick out from world history. Very prominent people, small and great. Books were opened. The book of the law, Joshua 1.8. And another book was opened, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. By the things which were written in the book, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and hell delivered up death who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The Bible tells us there is a final judgment. You can call it hell, Gehenna, the lake of fire, whatever you want to call it now. It's not popular today. It's more popular to question it, though it's been around for thousands of years. Jude said, which was once delivered to the saints. So so we've had this doctrine of eternal punishment for a long, long time. Very questioned in our day. And, uh, you you know, you watch Christian leaders go on television, and and it's sad because it's almost like the television host uh, sounds smarter than they do. Because what they're trying to do is use some kind of spiritual judo. Even guys that I love, right? Uh, They're trying to use philosophy. They're trying to use metaphors. They're they're, they're trying a hundred ways around this instead of just saying what the Scripture says and having a dialogue about it. And and there's a million analogies. You know, loving God can never send anybody to hell. Loving God can never do this. To what's the final question has to be on what authority? I'll give you an example. So, I was in college, and I'll never forget, we were driving one day and we were talking about religion. I can't remember too much the way I used to think, but I remember this. And a girl asked me, Hey, Bob, what do you think? Remember, I'm raised Catholic, right? So, I said, You know what I think? I said, I think we're going to live multiple lives until we're good enough, and we're finally good enough, we're going to go to heaven. She goes, I really like that. I think I'm going to adopt that. Now, Let's think through the logic. Where did that come from in my mind? I merged some form of Hinduism and Eastern mysticism with Catholicism, made that up probably to get a date, right? And she's going to adopt that as a lifelong principle to live by? On what authority? A loving God can never send anybody to hell. On what authority? Your finite mind? It's like a little kid digging at the seashore a little hole and trying to put the whole ocean in it. You can't. And so all all the psychological and spiritual judo of metaphors, and here's what God would do, and here's why he would do it. And I've read everybody, Francis Chan, C.S. Lewis, even Tim Keller gets into all this. Basically what it comes down to is this is the system God set up. It would be like going into a major league baseball game, swinging and missing three times. The ump calls you out and turning to him and saying, I don't like the idea that three strikes is out. (laughs) I mean, somebody made up major league baseball. That's the rules. We can't say to the potter, why did you create this system? Uh, Richard Dawkins, all the evolutionists, all the secular humanists, all the isms, are trying to convince us there is no final judgment. There is no sentencing, no punishment, no account for your life. Richard Dawkins ran a campaign on London buses that said, there's probably no God, so stop worrying, enjoy your life. What? Stop worrying, there's no God, enjoy your life? I gave you all the statistics last week. We've told the people there's no God for 50 years, and we're the most anxious generation in history. One out of four people is on some type of antidepressant or anxiety medicine in the most prosperous country in the world. We didn't stop worrying because there's no God. We're worrying more because we took them out of the picture. In developing countries, they're less anxious than we are. And where there's belief, there's less of this anxiety. The Bible is the authority. The Bible tells us hell is real, it's forever. Jesus in Luke 16, the parable of Lazarus, tells us that it's permanent. It's a place that the people there don't want anybody to go. It is a place of torment. Now, here's where I think I can help you. I want to give you four thoughts on how to reconcile this, and I'm not using philosophy and any kind of spiritual judo, okay? Number one, No one should like the idea of hell. No one should like it. The reason why you shouldn't like it is you've been the recipient of the greatest grace the world has ever seen. In other words, we're oriented towards grace. I I remember watching the OJ saga, right? That went on forever. And um, I remember the verdict that day. And whether you believe OJ did it or he didn't do it, when they said he wasn't guilty, there was just something in your spirit like, wow, well, that's grace for someone accused. Now, if you had lost a son or a sister, there was no justice. But let's just stay on the side where, oh my gosh, even somebody we think we should put in a cell and throw away the key, there was still a sense of relief. Relief. Why? We're oriented towards grace. We who were dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us when we were the unjust. So, so, so all of us, when we see a prodigal come home, we're not like the older brother. We want a ring on his finger. We want a robe on his back. We want people to come in. I don't care if somebody gets saved two seconds before Christ comes, I'll be the happiest person in the world. I'll be like the angels applauding You and I should be so oriented towards grace because God is. God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world. The whole world might be saved. If he didn't spare his only son, how will he not spare you? God gave his all. And don't count the Lord's promises slackness as some do, but the Lord's expanded this time that none would perish. No, not one. Anybody who walks around with a placard telling people they're going to hell, I would doubt they've ever experienced grace. Now, John the Baptist said, Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. I get all that, but no one should like this concept. No one. The second thing is, our shoulders aren't big enough to carry this burden. When my stepfather died, it ripped my brother apart. He really struggled with where is he? Is he in heaven? Is he in hell? And it probably really ripped them apart that I didn't struggle with it. And he says, why does this not bother you? And my answer was, one, God loves him more than I do. And number two, my shoulders can't carry this. If you put me on a deserted island, this is all I need. Genesis 1, Genesis 3, Uh, give me John 1, give me the resurrection, and a little bit of 1 Corinthians, and I'll make it, Okay? Genesis 3 is so profound. Satan doesn't come along and say, I'll make you guys rich. They already were rich. God said you can eat of all the trees. That wasn't a temptation. He didn't say, I'll make you guys powerful. They already were. I'll give you the kingdoms they already were. God said have dominion over What was the temptation? You can be like God. By the way, you're not going to die. There's no judgment. There's no... Right, atheism started a long time ago you can be like God knowing good from evil how's that worked out here's how it's worked out there's like 2,000 cable shows where two people argue about moral issues all day that's how it's worked out we're now the arbiter of what's right and wrong good and evil look where it's gotten us we were never meant to carry this load the judge of all the earth will do right he's the righteous judge The third thought I want to give you is from the book of Jonah. It's funny. We make this a kid's story, and it's one of the most vile stories in the Bible. So Jonah's a prophet, and he gets orders from God, I want you to go to Nineveh. And uh, we all know the story, Jonah doesn't want to go. And because he's a man of means, he pays the fare, and he goes as far away from Nineveh as he can. And everybody in the story is more righteous than Jonah, Even even the pagans on the boat, Are smart enough, we need to throw this guy over because he's causing us trouble, right? And Jonah swallowed by a great fish. And you know, people look at the book of Jonah and say, Oh, that's a kid's story, it's ridiculous, that couldn't be true. And of course, Jesus always quotes those books, right? In fact, he said, You know, my life, I'm gonna be like Jonah. I'm gonna be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, like Jonah was in the belly of the fish. And that was a type of resurrection. By the way. Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and he got spit out in the dry land. It's a type of resurrection. Um, And everybody thinks it was the message. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed, right? wasn't the message. Do you know what Jonah looked like after three days in the belly of a fish? People have actually written about this. He would have been an albino with no hair. He would have looked like like a combination of Uncle Fester... Do you remember who that was? And some alien walking around saying in 40 days Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And if I saw him, I would believe it. And guess what happens? The entire country, from the you know, the dictator all the way down, they they, they sit in sackcloth and ashes, the greatest revival in history. And at the end, so hard to believe. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, this displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He gets an an assignment, presides over one of the greatest revivals in history, and he's smoking mad. And here's why. He said to the Lord, ah, Lord, was not this what I said in my own country? I knew you were going to do this. Therefore, I ran away to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God slow to anger, abundant in hased that's loving kindness or mercy, and one who relents from doing harm. The Assyrians were ruthless and godless, and Jonah said, God, I know what you're up to. You are so benevolent, you are so full of mercy, you are so kind, you're gonna save the worst people on the planet, and I want nothing to do with it. And what strikes me in this is Richard Dawkins and the people of his ilk They always pick on the God of the Old Testament. He's a bully. He's an ethic cleanser. He's this. He's that. And yet right here in Jonah, we have a testimony of a man that God is gracious and relents from doing harm. How did Jonah learn that about God? Book of Exodus. The book of Exodus where God said, I brought you out of the house of bondage by a mighty hand. Uh, anybody know who enslaved the Hebrews for 400 years? The Egyptians did, right? Man did. See, every, everything we blame on God, man has done. Man enslaved them. Man, Pharaoh made them work seven days a week. And when the Ten Commandments come, God says, you'll have no gods before me because I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. He didn't say, I'm the creator, worship me. He said, I brought you out with a mighty hand, I'm a deliverer, I'm a gracious God. And then he gives the law. And what happens at the end of the law? There's that great chapter there where it says all these blessings are going to overtake you. Here's the problem when it comes to God and dialogue about things like hell. We tend to skew to the negative. In other words, we see all these blessings, but then we go right to the cursings and say, why would God ever curse anybody? Well, God never wanted to curse anybody. He wanted to bless. He said, but however, if you go astray, this is what happens. If you sow, you'll reap, and the wages of sin is death. But we always look at the wrong side of the coin. We we forget about the abundance in the garden. God said, when you come into the land, treat the stranger well, because you were a stranger. There were fields for gleaning. The Bible talks about God's kindness. Here's a final thought. John, who wrote Revelation, also wrote one of the most profound phrases in antiquity when he said, God is love. He gave us a definition of God. God is love. The gods of that time were not benevolent. They were egregious. They were angry. They were whimsical. They were not love. John comes along and says, God is love. And that's very hard to comprehend. It doesn't mean God acts in love or he's loving. It means there's never a time where he's not acting in love. In other words, it's the essence of who he is. Love demands justice, fairness, equity. How many of you, if your cable went out for an hour, would be on the telephone screaming at your provider? Justice. Or there was a bad call in a game. We want justice. Like like the deflated footballs, and for six months, somebody wanted justice. It's built into the fabric of who we are. It's almost like it has to be. And yet, when God has justice, we think it's unfair. By the way, Jonah, who presides over that flood, if you've ever been to the Sistine Chapel, everybody looks at the Michelangelo of Adam meeting God. There's a painting in there called The Judgment. And if you look at it, and I would say, gosh, I'd probably pay upwards of $500 for a scholar to break that entire thing down for me. Michelangelo knew the scriptures. He was brilliant. Not only a painter, he had a brilliant mind. But if you look at the second picture, I think they're going to zoom in for you. Do you know who's sitting over the entire judgment? You know who that is up there? Jonah. That's Jonah. Michelangelo understood exactly what we were talking about today. That there was the kindness of God, there was a resurrection, but there was also a certainty of judgment. Can I give you one last thought? And again, you'll never see this on cable TV, you'll never see it with all these ridiculous philosophical arguments, trying to explain what only God knows, okay? Sneak peek in the next week. Look at chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first of heaven and the first earth have fled away, and there was no more sea. I, John, saw the holy city coming down from God, prepared as a bride for a husband. And God will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death, no more sorrow. We don't know a lot about what this new world looks like. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, hasn't entered the mind of man, nor should it have. I don't want to live in anything that man has made up. We know more about what's not there. Verse 8, but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, and this is the second death. Stephen Lawson put together a list. It is phenomenal. Listen to what he says. There will be no more funeral homes, no hospitals, no abortion clinics, no divorce courts, no brothels, no bankruptcy courts, no psychiatric wards, no pornography, no dial porn, no teen suicide, no AIDS, no cancer, no rape, no missing children, no drug problems, no drive-by shootings, no racial tension, no prejudice, no injustice, no depression, no gossip, no worry, no emptiness, no loneliness, no child abuse. No wars, no financial worries, no emotional heartaches, no physical pain, no spiritual flatness, no relational divisions, no murders, no tears, no sufferings, no separation, no starvation, no arguments, no accidents, no emergency departments, no doctors, no nurses, no heart monitors, no rust, no perplexing questions, no false teachers, no financial shortages, no hurricanes, no decay. This doesn't mean anything to you and me, but I just met with people in South Africa. No locks, no Satan, no temptation. You know what we would do? Somebody would tell us a sob story, and we let them in and ruin everything that God has ever planned. Remember when people came to Jesus And it says he couldn't commit himself to them because he knew it was in the heart of man. See, that's where the rubber meets the road. Heaven is going to be more known for what's not there than what is there. And I say this all the time. What is going to be there is a company that John said no one could number. No one could number. There's going to be a ton of people in heaven And the beauty is we live in an age where whoever would call on the name of the Lord, they would be saved. They don't have to be good. They just have to call on the name of the Lord. Because Ephesians says that we're saved by grace through faith. There's no boasting. It's the gift of God, lest anyone boast. The doors of the ark are wide open, and God is compelling people to come in. Everything else is above our pay grade. But you can rest in the fact the judge of all the earth will do right. And if the thief was the first one in, and if the woman caught in adultery, Jesus said, where there are accusers, I will always skew to God's benevolence and grace because that's what I received. Then looking at the other side of the coin of what injustice and permanence in a place of torment looks like because I trust in what God has already done.